Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of my mentors is a priest from Canada, and he likes to tell the story of a really profound experience he had at a solemn liturgy at the cathedral in Nova Scotia. It may have been his ordination, I, I can't remember. But this moment left a really deep impression on him. It's not anything miraculous or dramatic, something pretty ordinary actually. But the cathedral is a bit like this church actually. It's in kind of the, the traditional Western style, which means that it's got a long, thin nave that's what we call this main part of the church where the congregation sits from the Latin for boat, the word navis, because the church is a boat, a ship that carries us through the stormy waters of this world. So a long, thin nave, two transepts like this, which if you look from up top, you see that the whole church makes a cross shape, right? Because the church is built out of the wood of the cross. And then a beautiful east-facing altar, just like we have here at all Saints. East, not necessarily in the geographic sense, though it's that here too uh, uh, at this church, but more in the symbolic sense, the, the east as the symbolic direction from which the, the risen Lord will return, right, as, as the rising sun of the world, the day spring from on high. So beautiful cathedral, and um, uh, it was uh, only an unusual liturgy in the sense that uh, the congregation was packed, so all the pews were filled. And the liturgy, again, as I said, it was a solemn occasion, perhaps an ordination, was being officiated by a bishop. So it comes time for the Nicene Creed. And the bishop goes up to the altar, standing uh, right there, facing east with the rest of the congregation in the direction of prayer. And the bishop begins in the traditional prayer book language uh, for the creed, I believe in one God. And my friend, who was standing in the chancel, just behind the bishop, says that his experience of what happened next was a bit like a kind of collective trumpet blast going off behind him as the congregation, in a firm, clear, confident, singular, booming voice, jumped in, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and proceeded along, saying the creed with the bishop. Again, nothing miraculous, nothing dramatic, but it left a profound impression on my friend. And the reason it did is because that moment was for him such an excellent illustration of the fundamental nature of the church. The church, it's often said, it has often been said in traditional theological language, the church is the congregation of the faithful. The congregation of the faithful. Men and women gathered together in the ecclesial boat built from the wood of the cross to profess in a resounding way from the depths of their being the one faith that is stewarded by the apostolic ministry of the bishop. It's a very old phrase, this phrase, the congregation of the faithful, the gathering together of those who are filled with the faith of Jesus Christ. And indeed, we might say that the identification of the people of God in such terms is decisively confirmed by our deeply arresting epistle reading for today. The hall of faith, as Hebrews 11 is sometimes called, 
is an encomium to the great men and women of the Old Testament, whose greatness consists, according to this chapter, precisely in their immense faith. The chapter begins with one of the clearest descriptions the Bible gives us of the nature of faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This text from Hebrews then gives us a good excuse to take a minute to think about what it is that the word faith actually means. What it is with which the church must be full in order to be faithful, right? In order to be a gathering together of the faithful. It's a concept that raises for people today a very wide variety of associations. Faith, some think, is a feeling of optimistic positivity about the world or about other people. Or maybe faith is a blind leap into a dark room when you have no other way of going forward. Or, as cynics might say, faith is a crutch of fantasy and wishful thinking for those who can't handle reality. There's no denying that faith, and Christian faith in particular, can sometimes be so hollowed out of its true substance that it comes across to people in such flimsy terms as these. But what I want to suggest to you today is that faith, when properly understood, is the opposite of flimsy. Faith is not just a weaker form of knowledge. It is, rather, the way by which we come to the highest certainty there is. Faith, in the church's tradition, is often taken to have three basic meanings. And I want to think about these three meanings with you this morning. Faith is, first of all, to believe that God exists. It's second, to believe what God says. And it's third, to believe in God. To believe that God exists, to believe what God says, and to believe in God. What do each of these mean, and how are they distinct? Well, first, let's take to believe that God exists. This one is actually the least interesting of the three. I remember C.S. Lewis remarking that it's a bit humorous that modern people get so preoccupied with the question of God's existence as though, as he said, all God had to do is exist. But the fact is that outside of a relatively narrow slice of modern humanity, very few people in human history have had any real doubt that there exists something we can call God. This is true not just for Christians, nor even just for monotheists like Jews and Muslims, but for the vast majority of religious and philosophical traditions in the history of the world. Atheists will say that modern science has shown that those ancient traditions are primitive, and that modern science has proven, for instance, that there is a natural cause to things people used to think were supernatural. But usually such arguments show that atheists don't quite understand what the word God means, at least to these serious religious and philosophical traditions. God is not just an explanatory plug we use to fill in the holes in our knowledge of the world, right? So it's not like we just um, 
see this terrifying flash of jagged light falling instantly from the sky, and we say, oh, wow, uh, where does that come from? Must be Zeus, right, throwing down thunderbolts from heaven. That's not what the word God means in the serious sense of that word. God, rather, is the fundamental basis for there being anything at all. He's not just a convenient explanation we give for random strange occurrences. He's, he's the principle underneath the fact that there is something rather than nothing, that anything at all exists. He's the ordering, unifying principle that makes the world a coherent system of cause and effect, of reliable patterns and natural laws, the very basis for natural science, therefore, by the way. He is the goal of all things, the goal that all things implicitly desire in desiring anything at all. So to put it bluntly, to, to deny that God exists would be to deny that you exist, because God just is existence itself, the source and ground of all being and life and light, of all things visible and invisible, as we say in the Creed. To believe that God exists is just to believe that the world means something, that things matter. No one can consistently dismiss such beliefs with a kind of adolescent shrug and not ultimately fall into insanity. Just read Dostoevsky. So to believe that God exists then, okay, check, great, that's number one. Even the demons believe and tremble, as St. James says. So what about this second sense of faith? To believe what God says. Well, there were a few verses in that text from Hebrews that our lectionary left out for today, where the author speaks of the Old Testament figure of Enoch, who pleased God and was taken up to heaven. The first figure assumed into heaven in the Bible. The author remarks that this was a sign of Enoch's great faith. For, he says, those who would please God and draw near to him must first believe that he exists, and second, that he rewards those who seek him. To believe that God rewards those who seek him is to believe that God cares about the world, that he cares about us and about what we do. He's not just a cold, abstract, impersonal first principle perpetually thinking about himself up in some celestial heaven. No, his gaze is fixed upon the children of men, his piercing eye weighing our worth, his fingers numbering our hairs, yearning constantly for us to come to him. He clothes the grass of the field and feeds the birds of the air. He is providential over all, working all things for good. And the chief way that Christians know this is because God has spoken to us. He spoke to Abraham and Moses and the prophets, revealing his solicitude for Israel and through Israel for the world. He spoke to John, to Mary, to Simeon, preparing them for his arrival in the flesh. But above all, he spoke to us in and as Jesus, the one final definitive word of God, the word God spoke who tells us everything we need to know about who God is and who is full of healing grace and infallible truth. To believe what God says is to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, 
the eternal Son of the eternal Father, who has opened up the way by his death and resurrection for us to draw near to God as his beloved children. It's not without reason that Christians believe God has so spoken. This faith is not purely blind, as some would have it. We have the testimony of countless throngs of apostles and martyrs, of saints and societies whose lives have been transfigured by their faith in Jesus. And we have the testimony of our own hearts, singing with an unbidden joy at the Christian vision of reality, which is, in the end, a love story, a romance about God's infinite love for his creatures. And we marvel at so many monuments of rapturous beauty, moral and aesthetic, that this love has produced down the ages. Hospitals in Christian Cappadocia, the missionaries of charity in India, civil rights in America, truth and reconciliation in South Africa, the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople, the St. Matthew Passion in Leipzig, Ephraim and his hymns in Syria, George Herbert and his poems outside Salisbury. But this kind of faith, faith in God's word, even when it comes with so many outstanding motives of credibility, as the theologians say, this faith is still a choice that we have to make. There is no evidence that could require our assent to the word God has spoken by the compulsion of logical deduction, as though by a kind of geometrical proof. You can't be forced to believe in Jesus, in other words. And that's by divine design, because God doesn't want pre-programmed human machines. He wants lovers. He wants us to love him freely, reciprocating his own free love for us. And that brings us to the third Christian sense of faith. Faith is to believe in God. As we say in the creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. It should be obvious that I do not mean by this simply to believe that God exists. We've already covered that one. To believe in God, rather, in the sense that we mean it when we say it in the creed, is something much richer and deeper. In the creed's original languages, in fact, to believe in God had the connotation of a motion towards God. We're not just thinking about the reality that God is, nor are we merely assenting to the truth of God's word. We're now actively, decisively, intentionally moving closer and closer to the one who so speaks. We are seeking to adhere our lives to, to his larger and fuller and more abundant life, to cleave to him, to press ourselves up against his side like St. John at the Last Supper. We're putting our whole trust and confidence in him, who is the most trustworthy of all lovers. This is what the author of Hebrews is talking about when he commends the faith of Abraham. Abraham was a man on the move, we might say. He knew that whatever consolations, whatever provisions, whatever stability he might happen to find in this world, he knew that this world was not his home. He was always looking forward, straining ahead to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. 
He knew that in this world, there is no true foundation, no true certainty. Not his family, not his wealth, not his home, not his health, not even his intellect or his wit. He knew that his only way of finding any sure and certain footing was to fix his eyes and his will always ahead on the one who had promised him a better country. He prefigured, in other words, exactly the habit of mind that Jesus described in the gospel. He placed his treasure and his heart in heaven, dressed for action, always awake and alert to the one who called him forward. Here's the point, friends. Faith, at its deepest level, is not just a static mental condition. It's a dynamic habit of your entire being towards the promises that God has made to you in Jesus Christ. A dynamic habit, not a static condition. Dynamic habit meaning moving, meaning powerful, meaning always in motion towards God. These promises that God makes are more certain, more real, more foundational than anything you could ever find in the world. But you have to really give yourself to them. You can't hold back. The degree to which God's promises feel unsteady is the degree to which you're still grasping onto your old life, to the life where you are in control, moving and settling in the places you see fit. But when you cleave to God in this deepest sense of faith, when you move towards him as Abraham did, when you set your treasure and your heart in heaven, as Jesus said, when you let go of your own careful strategies for making sure that your life turns out okay, and you trust God instead, you trust God's good plans for you, then you'll find yourself stepping forward onto the only certain solid ground there is. Because the thing is, when you give yourself to God, you'll find that God has already given himself to you. When you move towards God, you'll find that he has already making the first, taken the first move towards you. The certainty that faith gives doesn't come from anything that we do or anything that we think. It comes from the fact that God has prepared for us a city. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.